You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. Welcome to the Living for the Max series. Over the past 45 years, there's been no other film franchise quite as inventive nor as consistently exciting as the Mad Max saga. Directed by Australian cinematic genius George Miller, they have each reflected his unique vision while also being hugely influential on pop culture, most specifically the action genre. Therefore, over the next several months, I will be revisiting each entry of this beloved franchise every month, leading up to the U.S. release of Furiosa, a Mad Max saga on May 24th. Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior which came out in 1981 and was directed by George Miller. It stars Mel Gibson, Bruce Spence, Michael Preston, Max Phipps, Vernon Wells, Kjell Nilsson, Virginia Hay, William Zappa, and Emil Minty. The genre would be action thriller. In a world without gas. The Amongus rules the wasteland! I'm gravely disappointed that you wish to take the gasoline out of the wasteland. Defend the fuel. We'll never walk away! Give me the pump, the gasoline, the whole compound. This is a land that prays for a hero. Well, if anyone's going to get in there, it's going to be you. And there's no place left to run. left is one last chance. Pray that he's still out there. Somewhere. Mad Max 2. When I was genuinely binging through many movies during the pandemic, this was my first time actually really watching it intently since Mad Max Fury Road had come out in 2015. And this movie is still glorious fun that can even hold its own alongside Fury Road. And that's no small feat considering the vast differences and resources that George Miller had to work with during the long gestation period for that film in the 2000s. I consider both films, of course, to be genre masterpieces, but this was the OG. One of the things I love about all the Mad Max films is the tactile nature of each of them. It's a very lived-in universe where everything seems ground level, even when it gets ridiculous. The feral kid, Lord Humongous, Wes, the gyro captain. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it at work. Lethal. Lethal, these snakes. Born killers. I... No. It's my snake. I trained it. I'm going to eat it. So find your own. Get get out of it. I got a recipe for snake. Delicious. Fricassee of reptile. Get out. Better than your dog food. No. Pure protein. On paper, these characters could all come off as silly. And it's not as if they're given that much depth or backstories. But watching this, you feel like you are among them. You cannot help but be, since the action surrounding them just feels so visceral. Okay, settle down. It's all the same to you. I'll drive that tanker. The offer is closed. Too late for deals. No deals. I want to drive the truck. Why? Why the big change of heart? Believe me, I haven't got a choice. 
And how do you think you'd do it? I mean, look at you. You couldn't even drive a wheelchair. You should look at yourself, Max. You're a mess. Come on, cut the crap. There's so many impressive sequences in this film. I could not begin to list them. But let's just say that when shit starts to go down, someone wiping out on the side of a truck after getting pierced with multiple arrows, fingers getting chopped off from a whizzing metal boomerang, it all just feels like it really hurts. And to the credit of Miller and DP Dean Semler and an amazing crew of stuntmen, all of the action is at the center of the frame. And then there's Max himself, played expertly as a post-apocalyptic stranger in a strange land clad in leather by Melly Gibsons. He never says much, and yet he's all of the protagonists that we need in this world. We know that he's kind of a dick, the character I mean, but he's fun to watch. And that makes the ending for this film all the more perfect. Oh no, dog, racist guys, Melly Gibson. Oh, I know, I know, but think about it, man, think about it. Remember when he jacked up all them mutants in the Road Warriors? Talking about, was like, they're nothing here but saying. Yeah. And- this brings us to the categories. And the first category, because we are now part of the Living for the Max series here, is the moment of madness. From the get-go, the Mad Max series has become widely known for jaw-dropping action sequences, often made possible by death-defying stunt work. This would be, the moment of madness, the best demonstration of that for this entry in the Mad Max saga. Now, even amidst so many memorable stunts and set pieces, there can only be one definitive choice for this category. Definitely the most spectacular stunt in the film, and I'm referring to the very ending of what is essentially an extended 20-minute climax as Max is foolishly attempting to run this massive tanker of oil away from all of Humongous's gang who have swarmed around him on the road. And interestingly, we see Lord Humongous has pulled significantly ahead of Max's truck. We see him pass him, and then he just keeps going for a while. And then Lord Humongous turns around. Hmm. And as Max is barreling forward with his truck, he's got his co-pilot, the plucky feral kid. They're already headed headfirst into danger, but guess who's hanging on the front hood? (laughs) It's the vile mohawked thug Wes, portrayed with maximum sneer by Vernon Wells. He's all bloodied up, and he's angry. We witness a tense struggle between him and Max, pulling the kid in between them. And then, whoa, here comes Mr. Humongo himself, chugging towards them in his vehicle. And what results is pretty much the textbook definition of killing two birds with one stone. Humongo's battle vehicle smashes apart into a million pieces, as does the bloodied mess that was Wes. And this all culminates with the truck then smashing off the road, but not before flipping over about a half dozen times. In the annals of all-time ground-based vehicle crashes, this is right up there, with the truck flip in the dark night, the final bust into plane collision towards the end of speed, and, likely still the champion, the bus train collision which opened the fugitive. And this was all done on a mere fraction of the budgets of each of those other blockbusters, no less. Impressive. Which brings us to the next category, and that would be the best needle drop. 
This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Australian composer Brian May returns to conduct the score for this movie after also doing so for the first Mad Max movie, which came out two years prior. And his music for this film is actually quite similar, but arguably more bombastic. It's almost always fast-paced, quite melodramatic, and he loves using those booming horns for effect during action sequences. This is rousing stuff, but also quite foreboding at points to highlight the extreme danger that our hero and eventually several of his newfound allies face from Lord Humengus and his brutal gang of marauders. You can also definitely hear a similar sound just over a year later with Basil Polidorus' iconic score for Conan the Barbarian, sort of a Wagnerian propulsiveness. Most of the score is actually quite cohesive throughout, but for me, the biggest standout occurs early in the film as Humongous's gang of marauders are in the process of capturing, killing, and arguably worse, to some of the more vulnerable members from the Oil Tribe. The track I'm referring to from this soundtrack is fittingly called Marauder's Massacre. The next category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, I'm going to take this category in a slightly different direction by highlighting the contribution of someone involved with this production who maybe does not receive as much credit for the success and impact of this film as some of the more obvious players like Miller or Gibson. Off the bat, all I really need to convey this is two words. Shoulder pads. Shoulder pads. Now, is this the movie where a long-running, 40-plus-year trend of using shoulder pads as a costume choice to help key badass characters stand out? Is this where it first started? I'm not completely sure. I believe they might have been used in some notable genre films from the 70s, including Rollerball and previous episode, The Warriors, but not like here. As far as I can tell, there are at least two major characters rocking the shoulder pads in this movie. That would be the mohawked villain lieutenant, Wes, played by Vernon Wells. You! You can run, but you can't hide! And one of the more capable brawlers from the side of good in this movie, who would be known as Warrior Woman. That's how she's credited, Warrior Woman, played by Virginia Hay. Trading in human flesh, trash. And they both pull off the shoulder pads very well. In fact, there is no shortage of iconic gear worn by the cast, even the extras. It's definitely one of the more lasting legacies of this movie. You've got spike bracelets and necklaces, cod pieces, leather chaps, hockey masks, and animal furs in all sorts of unexpected places. The costuming is just such a key aspect of what helps this film endure. I heard it best described on Reddit as a combination of punk rock aesthetics, surplus sports gear, and leather fetish wear. Uh, yeah, none of that stuff's really gone away, has it? No. <laughs> 
And whatever kind of crazy post-apocalyptic world has emerged in Australia during the alternative timeline of this movie, one thing is abundantly clear. When things got hairy, the crazies truly raided the sporting goods stores. So be on the lookout. And who was the visionary artist generally responsible for this dazzling array of styles featured in this movie? Well, that would be Norma Morisot, who originally hailed from Sydney, Australia. She also worked as an actress during the 1980s, but truly found her niche in costume design. Norma first made her mark designing clothing for punk bands in London in the 1970s, before returning to her home country to eventually collaborate with George Miller on both this film and its follow-up Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. By all accounts, she was a fantastic collaborator, who would also work intently with much of the cast on these movies, even smaller parts, to help find the distinct look that they were going for even helping them craft backstories for characters which mainly would be manifested through their costumes, just folks we see in the background. And after first receiving positive notices for these two Mad Max films, she would end up having a pretty strong career in movies until her unfortunate passing in 2016, including films like Crocodile Dundee, of course, Australia, come on, but also Something Wild, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and even Babe, Pig in the City, which was also directed by George Miller. Her contribution to fashion would, of course, eventually transcend movies. I mean, seriously, just watch some footage of the crowds for concert festivals like Coachella or Burning Man. Morisot's lasting contributions are still there on display. So a special shout out to the late, great Norma Morisot, whose legacy still endures decades later, with shoulder pads and so much more. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Within a film that features pretty much non-stop, pulse-pounding action, my choice for the dramatic highlight of the movie would actually be a pretty simple and straightforward dialogue exchange relatively early in the movie. We're about a half hour into the story, and the relatively good people at the barricaded oil refinery are scared. They have just been attacked by Humongous's marauders and are now being threatened by the hockey-mask-clad lord himself, to give up the oil, or suffer even more violent consequences. You have defied me. You will know the vengeance of the Lord and Mangus. I promise you, nobody, nobody gets out of here alive. There's a whole back and forth between William Zappa's Zeta, who's apparently the default leader, and several others. But there's nothing but bad choices, and no one is completely confident as to how they can safely flee the compound and to keep their oil. And just when things seem all the more hopeless, as no apparent consensus can be reached, they hear a whistle from a mysterious figure who just recently joined them. Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Whether we can be completely sure if this, quote, stranger is on the level, well, that doesn't matter. He is clearly a master behind the wheel, and he seems to know what he's doing. And this pretty much sets the remainder of the plot into motion, while also demonstrating once again just how damn charismatic a star Mel Gibson was at this time, and for many years after. This brings us to our final category, the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. If you had listened to our previous episode for the first Mad Max movie, this might seem a bit repetitive, but there is simply no denying that this movie only worked as a result of a burgeoning director who was really coming into his own. This was only the second film to be directed by Miller, and coming off of the shocking worldwide success of Mad Max, his first film, in 1979, he could almost write his own ticket. I mean, Dude was being offered a slew of big-time Hollywood directing gigs, including Conan the Barbarian and First Blood, and yet he eventually decided to return home 
and to proceed with a sequel so that he could see what he could do with a real budget and actual resources. Keep in mind that the budget for this movie was only around $3 million, but it still costs more than 10 times his budget for the original Mad Max film. And the crazy thing is that this movie feels exponentially bigger than that first Mad Max movie. So many more characters, so many more vehicles, and a never-ending stream of set pieces. Despite occasionally branching off into different genres with films like The Witches of Eastwick, Miller would keep the Mad Max franchise on under his control as his own personal ongoing passion project. And for delivering what remains one of the textbook definition examples of a sequel, which builds and improves on its predecessor in every conceivable way. George Miller is the MVP. So when the opportunity came up to do a second one, I was able to do all the things that I had learned from that experience. So the second film, I think very uh, perceptive actually, was, was quite a big shift both in the, in the themes of the story and in the, in the, in the techniques. And, but, but I knew by then that, that that's filmmaking, that things are always going to go wrong and you have to ride that big dog in some way, you know, to get it done. My rating for The Road Warrior, or Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior, would be five stars out of five. <laughs> Undoubtedly, this is a special movie, one of the best of its genre. And yet, crazily, it's not even among my personal top two favorites for this franchise. But I'm just kind of weird that way. We'll get to those soon enough. And if you're looking to watch Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, it is currently streaming at USA. And that ends another gas-guzzling review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast. And follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.